I want to invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 9. And so if you can, um, if you didn't bring a Bible, if you don't have a smartphone or an app or a tablet or something that has it, um, and you don't have a Bible with you, would you just raise your hand? And my friend Mark will actually come by and he's going to give you a Bible. So if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like one, please raise your hand. And in addition to that, if you don't own a Bible, if you don't have one um, in your possession, please take that as our gift to you. Let that be something we give to you. And in fact, man, give it to someone you know who doesn't own a Bible. Um, But we want to be in Matthew chapter 9. Uh, and we want to talk about the parables of Jesus. And uh, while you're finding that, I'll, I'll give you a, maybe a, a bit of a recap and, and a, as well as a preview. Um, so I'll give lip service to this the best I can. Um, my sense of celebration um, isn't really like, hey, you know, you guys thank God for me. It's um, I, we thank God for you that, that God has given us a new family that we didn't know we had. And every time we get together, whether it's in homes or on a Sunday morning here, I get to look at this new family that God gave me. And no offense to my brother, but I like this one better. Um, <laughs> and, and so I, 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 don't, I don't know how to say that um, rightly. I, um, since I've had girls, I'm just an I'm emotional dude. I thought I was a tough guy, but I don't go camping anymore. I just, we, we dress up like princesses and do tea parties. Um, so I, I love you dearly and love the fact that God has put our lives together and that, that in, in and of itself is a gift that I've never deserved and I thank God for every day. Um, out of Philippians, the guy who wrote Philippians, he says, I thank God every single time I remember you. Um, and so I, I feel that way about you. So there you go. Um, we can hug it out later. Um, the parables of Jesus. So the last couple of weeks we've looked at what it means to be this thing called Connection Church, some values that we think come out of Scripture um, that we hope exemplify what we found as we walked through the first half of the book of Acts. The very first church, the very first followers of Jesus, they believed a certain way, and they looked a certain way, and they acted a certain way. And we hope that as we dig through that, we find some of these things that, that jump out at us. And the most important thing that we hear us repeat over and over and over again is this word gospel. And it simply means it's a churchy, Bible word for good news. It's just the good news. And our identity, more than anything else, is found in this good news of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. And so everything we do as a result is ultimately pointing toward somehow serving or or making much of this good news of what Jesus has done. And so whether it's in the way that we serve, it's in the way that we um, are generous towards God's mission, the way in which we um, are self-sacrificing and selfless, and we love our city so much that we, we think that we ought to look a lot like our city, um, even to the way that we find ourselves um, giving and loving of ourselves to, to our neighbors and the people around us in a very simple way that is loyal to the simplicity of the truth of the gospel. All of this ends up making much of Jesus and trying to get this ultimate word out about who Jesus is and what he's done for the world. And so we say it kind of in a different way, but like, like we want to serve, we want to serve people, but our job, and we don't have to feel guilty about this, is not to save the world. We don't have the responsibility to save the world. We have the responsibility to tell the world about the guy who already saved it. And we have been, by no merit of our own, but only by God's grace, entrusted with this message of good news that you don't have to live this way, and life doesn't have to be the way that the world promotes it. But instead, Jesus has done something that has radically altered the course of history and even radically reordered our own lives for eternity. And as a result, we start looking a certain way. And one of the ways I think that we, 
begin to see the power of this, and we always are looking for new metaphors and ways in which we can explain and talk about and apply the gospel to our lives is to dig very deeply into the teachings of Jesus. And so over the course of the next couple of years, hopefully um, this part of your Bible around Matthew that we call the Gospels that, that is containing, in, inside it has the story of who Jesus is, a lot of his teachings and the things that he did. Hopefully this will be a very worn out spot in the Bible. Hopefully the, the Bibles that we pass out will start getting worn out and the pages will get really tattered in these areas because we want to be radically loyal to this thing that Jesus has done more than anything else. And anytime we even wander away from these pages and, and we're somewhere else in the Scripture, we ultimately believe that God is doing this one singular thing through Jesus that He began in the beginning in Genesis and that He is wrapping up in the end of Revelation that carries on for ages to come. Jesus gets the glory. Jesus gets the honor. It's what we sing about. Um, it's, it's why there's, there's lots of good songs out there, but we want to pick the ones that we sing. If we're going to celebrate it together and sing together, because it's not really something we do a lot in our culture, but if we're going to do that and it's going to be odd and be its own kind of culture here in this place, then it had better make much of who Jesus is. And it had better point to the goodness of Jesus and what he has done. But some of the most amazing ways I think we see this illustrated, and as we look for different metaphors to apply the gospel and share the gospel, then parables of Jesus are maybe the best place. So a word on parables. Jesus um, did some things, even people who, who wouldn't even call themselves followers of Jesus. And so if you're in this place and you, you find yourself thinking, I don't know that I would call myself a Christian. I don't know that I'm a follower of Jesus. That's okay. One of the coolest things about Jesus is that he seems to be known throughout history as a guy who, who changed the course of history and known specifically for the fact that he seemed to perform miracles that made quite a hoopla uh, in his day and age, but also he spoke and taught in parables. Um, and, and the ways in which he taught seemed to have endured the test of time, so much so that even people who would say they're not a Christian would, would probably identify and understand and definitely be heard of some of these stories before. They're different parables, and they have themes about God's kingdom. And, and most often the theme, about, or theme that we see in, in the parables that Jesus means to illustrate is this thing, this phrase that we see over and over and over in the Gospels called the kingdom of God. And that's a weird phrase because we don't use those words, right? Kingdom, that's not, that's not something we, you know, that's not a transaction that we, that we tend to, to have on a regular basis. And so there's maybe some little unpacking before we dig into the teachings of Jesus. We want to talk about what he means when he says that there's a kingdom, and that kingdom has come, is coming, and there's something that we're meant to do as a result. And the way I like to illustrate it, and you've probably heard me say this before, is the word kingdom literally means reign, like R-E. I-G-N, right? Not like rain that falls from the sky, but rain as in we rain over something. Again, that's not a word that we use on a regular basis, but it's the rain or rule of God. And, and essentially, we ask the question when we hear words about the kingdom of God, and as we want to understand what the kingdom of God would look like in our own lives, one of the best questions to ask is, what would it be like if God were in charge? The kingdom of God through Jesus, we'd ask ourselves, what would it be like if Jesus were in charge? Now, we do this regularly. In fact, Tuesday, this week, this is a big deal. There's a lot of people who make cases um, through radio commercials or TV commercials or signs of what it would look like if you elected them to be in charge, right? You especially see this kind of language around the election of, uh, say, a president, but certainly like a, in, a, in a governor race or, or some other important politician. When they make a case, they're saying, hey, elect me because this is what it's going to be like when I'm in charge, right? And they tend to say stuff that, 
even if they have no power or ability to do it, they're selling what it would look like if, if they could have their way. If they could have their way, which they don't because they have a lot of other people voting for and against their way, but if they could have their way, this is what it would look like. And then they start saying, no more war, and everybody gets free stuff, and everybody, and and there's no more taxes. I don't know how we're going to get the free stuff without paying taxes, but we're going to because that's what it's going to be like when I'm in charge. Elect me, right? And and who knows what it's actually going to look like or how it's going to play out, but, but they're making a case for what it would look like if they got their way and they were in charge. And you can go around the room. You know, we, we know each other. You can even act like, what would it be like if, if I ruled the world, right? What would it look like? Huh? You know what I mean? Bacon? Be bacon? Different places? Right? Probably lots of ice cream, lots of steak. You know what I'm saying? I think it would be, it would be like fall or spring, year round. Yeah, but we could still water ski and snow ski. That's, that's what we, we, that would be like if I were in charge. If I ruled the world, that's what it would be like. And you could go around the room, like, what, what would it be like if this person were in charge? Well, that, you know, ooh, and good or bad, this is what it would be like. And, and ultimately, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is coming. I am in charge. And before he left, one of the last few things he said, he said, all authority under heaven, under earth has been given to me. I'm in charge of all this. And even when sometimes it looks like it's out of control, trust me, I am in charge. And the question we get to ask as we contemplate what it would look like to be under the reign of Jesus each and every day is when we wake up in the morning, we can say, what would it be like if Jesus had his way in my life today? You want to begin to see the kingdom of God come alive in your own life, your own context. Ask that question. What would it be like if I made decisions today, not based on what I want, but what if I made decisions today based on what Jesus wants? And that begins, now it starts to look radical, doesn't it? How, how, how would you spend your money if instead of basing your decisions on what you want, you spent your money based on what Jesus wants? Would you spend your time in a different fashion? Would you do things differently if you really believe that Jesus ultimately wants to get what he wants rather than what we want? important decisions sometimes we don't think very much about but what what kind of house should you buy or what kind of apartment should you live in where where should you live based on getting what you want but then what would it look like to live in a place and choose and select that place based on what god wants the finances start to look differently don't they they start to benefit God's will and his kingdom rather than our own. And, and that's essentially every time we dig into the teachings of Jesus, especially the parables about the kingdom, he's simply saying, this is what it might be like if you would radically surrender to the good news of my kingdom that's coming. I'm a good king. Jesus says, I, I, I'm not going to oppress you, but instead my burden is light. The yoke that I will give you is easy to pull. And when I'm king, this is what it looks like. So I want to read through a chunk of Matthew chapter 9, um, ultimately uh, trying to focus on verse 14 through verse 17, but to give you some context about what it is that Jesus is doing in this particular chapter and give you an idea of why it is that this one small parable is important, and we'll, we'll dig into a few in the next couple of weeks, but this one is a short one, and I think it sets the stage for the rest, and in fact, it's one of the first parables recorded, verse 1 of Matthew chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and he came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, 
where your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Verse 9, And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew. Now this is the guy who wrote this book from which we are reading. More about that later. Jesus sees this man, Matthew, and he's sitting in his tax booth. And he said to him, to Matthew, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, that is Jesus, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but instead those who are sick. Go and learn what this means, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. But I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. For no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. For if it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But instead, new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. We believe God speaks through His Word, and so I simply want to, over the next few minutes, walk through what it is that Jesus seems to be saying, and what it is, amazingly, that Matthew seems to be telling us about Jesus. So, from the beginning of this chapter, this is a story, if you'll remember, Matthew and Luke tell us. And we looked at this several weeks ago as we were looking at the parallels between the followers of Jesus in the book of Acts, living out Jesus' commands, and what Jesus seemed to do in his own life and ministry. And so these first Christians looked a lot like Jesus did, so much so that one of the knocks on them as they began to love people who were very radically different from them was that, man, these guys look like Jesus. And, and at a place called Antioch, a place full of the most diversity, a place where the mission of God was, seemed to be on the front of everyone's mind, that was where people mocking them said, man, these guys look like Jesus. They're like little Christs. That's where they were first called Christians, which wasn't meant to be a compliment, but it was meant to be a knock saying, hey, these, these guys are just like the crazy Jesus. And so there's parallels between the things that the disciples did and, and the things that 
Jesus did, and this story was one of them. And, and there's amazing power that Jesus first points toward. And, and one of the first things we see when we're looking through a parable, whether it's about these, these cloth and pieces of unshrunk garment tied to an old piece of cloth, a patch, or whether we're talking about new wine and old wineskins, the first question we always want to ask when we're talking about the parables, the metaphors, the allegories Jesus was using to illustrate his kingdom is, where is Jesus? Because ultimately, Jesus never did or said anything that pointed away from himself. But ultimately, everything he did was pointing to himself, revealing who he was to give God glory. And everything that he revealed about himself was meant to show the world who God is and what God looks like. So that if any of us were ever to say, well, what's God like? We can simply look at Jesus and go, that's what God's like. Because that's what happened when God was with us and God was one of us. And Jesus, pointing to himself, making much of who he is and showing who God is like, does something radical here. Instead of immediately healing the guy, which he had a reputation of doing, he said something crazy to this man who was paralyzed. And he said, you, your sins are forgiven. You saw the scribe's response, probably like our response. If, for example, I were to go into Minnehaha County Jail and I were to walk in there and to walk up to a prisoner and say, you're free. You're free to go. Everyone would look around me and they would ask that probably similar question that scribes ask. Who, who are you that think you have the authority to do that? So much so they'd be like, you're, you're crazy. You can't, you're, you're inciting a riot. You're doing things, that's, you, you have no authority to set people free. And Jesus, knowing that that doubt was creeping up in them, he said, so you will know that I have the power that I profess, that I do have the power to forgive, because they were wondering who can forgive sins against God except for God. And Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. In fact, they didn't even ask it. They had just thought it. He said, I'm glad you were thinking that. And so you'll know that I have the power to forgive. So you'll know that God is a forgiving and merciful and loving and healing God. You, to this paralyzed man, you get up and walk. Not only does Jesus have the ability to set right things in the world like a body that is mangled or attacked or riddled with some sort of a disease for instance we don't know why this man is paralyzed but for whatever reason jesus wants you to know that not only does god have the power to set that right but because we see that we also know that god has the power to set right that which is broken in our own souls jesus not only has the power to to change the way the world works but he has the power to change eternity for us and the next story throws right on top of it. And this is really cool because this is Matthew talking about himself. Matthew, who was not a religious man, but Matthew was a, probably a man rejected by the religious people. In fact, that's probably what he was hoping to do. That was kind of the, the elite. And instead of having, living out the, the prophecy of his own name, he became the worst of the worst. He was a tax collector. You see, the Jews were living in a place that was occupied by the Roman government, and they had no power except that which the Roman government gave them. And it was a very limited kind of power. And so while they ruled over the people, even though you know, it was their land, they had taken over, occupied it, and were ruling it, they, they did a few token things. They gave some authority to certain people. But the people who took that authority were essentially thought of as turncoats. They were thought of as traitors. And so for the Roman government to come in and take over and for them to give out responsibilities and for us to rapidly take them was actually, according to these people, to turn against them. Similarly, I mean, I don't want to be a fear monger, but 
you know, let, let's go back to the age of Rocky or whatever. I, I don't think anyone's going to take us over, but let's say Rocky had it right and, and the Russians come in, take over the United States. The Russians are running the United States. And what if one of us immediately jumped in to help them, right? Oh, hey, Russian government, you've come in, destroyed us, um, killed all our families, deported some of us, separated us. Hey, can I help you, can I help you take taxes? Can I help you get revenue for your project? We would think that person is probably less than patriotic, correct? Well, now imagine that we believe that America was ordained by God, like, like the nation of Israel, right? Imagine if we believe that. Now, all of a sudden, you're not just turning on your own people. You're turning on God's chosen people. You're turning on God's will for his people. And that's who Matthew was. He was a traitor. He was a turncoat. And Jesus walked right through the crowd, right up to Matthew, and he said, you, drop what you're doing and follow me. And Matthew, for whatever reason, God's grace seemed to stir him and startle him, and he threw away his old way of living, and he began to follow Jesus. Of course, the, resi- the religious people start to get angry, and they say, hey, wh- why, are you, why are you getting here with, with the tax collectors? Because we have a system, and the system works like this. Those who are religious, those who do all the right things, they get all the good things. Get all, those people that do all the bad things, they get all the bad things. And good things happen to the good people who do good things, and bad things happen to the bad people who do bad things. Now, we don't believe something silly like that in our day and age, right? We wouldn't dare believe something so archaic, right? We wouldn't think that God would actually reward good things with good things and only punish bad people, right? We wouldn't believe that. But Jesus seemed to offend the people in this story who do believe that. By instead of saying, hey, you Pharisee, you scribe who are well-educated, been to seminary, you know God's word, you know God's commands and God's law. Hey, you, you follow me. Instead, he walked right past those people to the guy who was a turncoat and a traitor, and he said, you, you're the one I want. Hear this good news that reveals God again. That God has not come ultimately for those who are righteous. God has come in the form of Jesus for those of us that are sinners. And so in the context of a guy who's healing people, forgiving people, and calling into action people who do not deserve it, we have this little parable. It was sparked by a conversation in which the disciples of John said, hey, Jesus, why aren't you and your other people taking part in this religious practice? The religious practice of fasting. And I said, Jesus, why aren't you doing this? And Jesus begins to explain and he uses some metaphors. He uses kind of an allegory here. He says, well, there's a couple things. There's a, there's a picture of the wedding, then there's a picture of an unshrunk garment, and then there's a picture of the wineskin. And the first one is the wedding. And so he simply says, can the people who are with the groom mourn? And again, his little allegory is meant to draw people to see who God is and see how God has revealed himself through Jesus. And he uses a pretty common picture. So throughout the entire Old Testament, God is often referred to as a groom. So much so that when the prophets come and speak to God's chosen people, they use the language of marriage. And they say, hey, you, you're essentially being unfaithful and Sometimes they use really strong language, even calling God's people, for instance, the whore of Babylon because they're so unfaithful to God, their groom, and they have abandoned, betrayed, and been unfaithful to God that God calls them back to repentance and faith in Him. 
And that language of God as groom shows up over and over and over again. And this is not uncommon language for the people that would have asked this thing. And Jesus simply says, look, when the groom comes around, you stop mourning. So I don't want anyone to, to like trample off into sinful thoughts, but can you think of the last story you've heard about a bachelor party? Um, I had good, I, well, no, I didn't. I, I had guys that my wife set straight. So my bachelor party was like we went to the lake and we went wakeboarding, right? That was, that was it. And we had peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I, whew, I mean, it was fun. It was a blast, right? So but, you know, essentially, there wasn't anything crazy happened, but there was no mourning either. Lots of laughing, lots of fun. And if you kind of picture, if you will, the last bachelor party, minus all the sinful things that do, but is it a place where people are ultimately sad and like, oh, oh, it's terrible. Oh, that usually those kind of stories go another way. They're like, oh my goodness, it was so great. It was so crazy. It doesn't make any sense. Kind of like, hey, you're not going to do this for the rest of your marriage, but act like a moron and do it now. I don't recommend it. But, But we could all at least agree as crazy and sinful as it may get. Nobody's crying, right? It's a party. And when you go to a wedding, other than, other than the, the father of the bride who's weeping with joy, right? Other than the people who are weeping for joy, we, we would think there was something really out of place if someone was really mad or, or really angry in the wedding. Not only that, but I mean, Jesus goes further and says that not only is happiness meant to be surrounding the bridegroom, coming, but, but there's also this picture we kind of see here, like what, what would the wedding be if the groom didn't show up? Now we're mourning, right? Now, except for, again, except for the father of the bride who is crying, but now tears of joy, right? That's wrong. That's not true. But there's this kind of picture that not only is there celebration that comes with a wedding, but the mourning would only happen if they were missing a, a key piece like the room. And Jesus, who is God, the forgiving and loving husband made flesh, says that there is celebration because I am here. I'm not here for revenge, but I'm here to call my unfaithful people back to myself. Not because they deserve it, but because I love them and I desire greatly to be with them. And so instead of mourning, first and foremost, it is for us who have heard this good news of Jesus, who even in our unfaithful wandering, even in, as the Bible tells us, even in our prostitution, our, our wanting to, we will sell ourselves to anything but God. We will desire and worship and idolize anything but God's will. And God in his mercy doesn't come down wanting to destroy us, but instead to say to our unfaithfulness, come, I still want you. I will still lay my, de- my life down for you. There's a day that's coming. And this is where he deviates. There's a day that's coming in which the bridegroom is going to be taken away. Now, this doesn't really fit into our picture of weddings, but, but for him, he knows exactly how this bridegroom is going to act. But then, then he begins to illustrate the unfitfulness of, of how the good news of who he is fits into their religious activity. And he says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. So ask that question, where is Jesus here? What's, what's Jesus trying to say? And I think you'll find in this picture an uncomfortable mix between the kingdom that Jesus brings and the good news of what he has accomplished and our conventional wisdom about God. And I want to introduce it this way. Have you ever like committed yourself to kind of religious activity and then been bummed out by it? 
If I do this thing, God will bless me in this way. And then you've been terribly let down. You ever been there? It looks different. Like, hey, if, you know, if I, I promise I'll be good or I'll do this thing, and it looks different for every single person. Maybe it's, I promise I'll go to church, but then you find yourself just going to church and really hating it, hating the people who are there. In fact, the way that plays out, you ever see people like really excited about Jesus and they kind of make you angry? Right? Because this whole, this religious practice, it, it doesn't quite get you the thing that you want. It doesn't quite get the thing that it seems to promise. And, and religious habit, it doesn't get you anything but in the habit. It doesn't necessarily get you the thing that you desire. And Jesus is pointing to this. Because as he was challenged about why they didn't observe this religious practice of fasting, Jesus puts it right back on them and says, you can do all of the religious activity you want. You can have all the religious practice you want. But if it doesn't get you me, then it doesn't matter. We can all dress up in tuxedos. You can get a woman dressed in white. You can get a pastor to stand here. You can get a limo to wait outside. But if you don't get the groom, then you don't get to call that whole party a wedding, do you? And so they ask, like, why, why don't you fast? And Jesus puts right back on them, look, you can be as religious as you want, but if you don't know me, if you don't see what I have done for you, then all of that religion, all of that religiosity has been a waste of time. Because it hasn't gotten you Jesus, it's only gotten you busy. And Jesus challenges their thinking. He challenges their thinking. This understanding that if you go here and do this, I would argue it probably challenges our thinking. And this is why so often, as we talked about for the last few weeks, the church is rarely defined by their loyalty to the gospel, but the church as we see it is often defined by our culture by a whole host of other different attributes. They're the people who fill in the blank. And none of those answers seem to be, they're the people who loyally, they love the good news of what he's accomplished. They're the people who will follow him to the end of the earth. But instead, you're more likely, even in our own city, to hear people like, hey, what's the church? Well, it's the people they dress up every Sunday. You can dress up all you want, but if you don't know and follow Jesus, you won't get the joy that God promises. Or they go to this building, they all get together, they sing songs, sing all the songs you want, but if you don't know and follow and love and cherish what Jesus has done for you, then you won't know the peace. And all those words and that song that we sing about how good Jesus is will be really, really annoying to you. They're the people to sit and listen to this guy preach for like 45 minutes every week. God bless some people. They only do it for like 20. But you guys, you guys have a full cup, right? And you find yourself being really annoyed by it because I'm telling you, you can do all the things and go through great pain, sit on these metal chairs, but if you don't get the joy that comes from Jesus, then man, this will feel like an incredible waste of your time. And Jesus says, for all the religiosity that you may have, you are trying to fit this new thing, a new garment, and patch it onto an old system. And what he's saying about the wineskins and about this garment, and you can get the picture here. You, if you take a patch, right? You've got a hole in your pants. And if you take a patch, because we know now you can, buy, you can buy like pants that already have holes in them, ready to be patched, right? If you take a patch, a new piece of cloth, and you attach it to an old piece of clothing, do you have a new pair of pants? Right? If, if you take a new patch and you try to kind of stick it and fix the old part, do, do you all of a sudden get to say, I have a new pair of pants? Absolutely not. 
In fact, so much so, and this would have been especially important, this was before the, the dawn of you know, high, high efficiency front-loading washers and dryers. For them, it was hand-washing, and, and shrinking their clothing happened a lot less often because they washed their clothing, certainly with hot water, a whole lot less often than we would. We push a button, everything shrinks at the same pace. But for these people to take something that had shrunken over years because that's how long the clothing would have lasted and that would have been not that many cycles of washing and drying. And over the course of years, it would have shrunk. If you take a new piece of cloth that hasn't gone through that same cycle, stick it to it, it's actually going to ruin it. Not only will you not get a new garment, but you'll end up ruining the old one. You won't fix it, but you'll ruin it. The same picture here is of a wineskin. Sometimes um, Native Americans, we know this, we're in South Dakota, so we know the history of Native Americans. They used to take skins, sometimes, this is really gross, but they would take and they would hold water or, or drink in, say, like um, stomach, intestines, linings um, used from a carcass of an animal, and it held water really well. In fact, when you would ferment something in it, all that flavor that comes from all that good body part um, would get into it, and apparently I think it would make it good. Not, not so much in my, my own thought, but that, that, that's, that's the picture we have here is that whether it's a leather handmade skin or if it's like a, maybe the, the, the intestine or bladder or stomach of, of an animal, they would store it, and, and the, over through the process of fermentation, it would bubble, simmer. Again, some of you are going to know more. I don't, I don't know how to, I haven't made anything in my home just quite yet, but the process of fermentation in this, in this winemaking process would bubble up the skin, stretch it out all the way to its max, until it was ready and it would kind of begin to dissipate away. Well, in the process, if you take the old wineskin, which you've already used, it's already been stretched, it's already been fatigued, and you patch and you, and you put new wine, you want to do it again with an old thing, then you'll actually not only kill the wineskin because it will spread, stretch out and burst, but you'll ruin your entire purpose of making new wine. It'll spill out on the ground. I want you to see the picture of the gospel here. Jesus has not come. Jesus has not come to be stitched into your life in some small and menial way. Jesus has not come to fit into your containers, your preconceived notions, your preconceived expectations and plans. But our Jesus has come, according to Revelation 21, to make all things new. So some of you may, if I say, hey, picture in your mind an old, tattered piece of clothing, um, you, might, you might be able to sympathize with that. You yourself, as you look back across your own life, you may have lots of scars, you may have lots of experiences that left you beat up, that lowered your expectation of people. I have good news for you. Jesus has come to erase the past by granting to you a greater future than you can imagine. Jesus doesn't want to give you some hobby to do on Sunday, but instead of just patching himself into it, Jesus wants to give us new identity. Jesus has done something that has given us a clean slate, a new existence, a new joy, a radical new joy, such that if you try to kind of just patch it in and stitch it into what you already believe about God, if you try to patch it in and stitch it into your own career choices, your own plan for your life, and you try to kind of tack Jesus on, you will find that it will make your life miserable and you won't even get the joy that Jesus is promising. Because that's not what Jesus ultimately has come to offer. 
Jesus isn't the icing on the cake. Jesus is all of existence. He is life. And the good news that He gives to us gives us new identity in Him. He's greater than just the icing on the cake. And so we see in this parable, first, the picture of the gospel. Incredibly good news. Jesus doesn't want to give you a new hobby. You got problems in your life? You have brokenness in your family, and your relationships? You have bitterness, hate, hurt? You have scars that you carry around? Isn't it cool that Jesus' remedy isn't, hey, I've got this place where you can hang out every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock? Because that would feel really patronizing, wouldn't it? That would feel really kind of demeaning. Like if you would just pray this prayer and do this thing and hang out with these people, everything's fixed. And here's good news if you found yourself thinking this can't be in the bit, right? This thing we do on Sunday that Christians do around this city on Sunday, it can't be the solution to everything, right? This religious practice, that can't be it. And I have good news for you, it's not. Jesus didn't come to just patch in this thing for your life. Instead, he came to give you a new life. Here's the word for us as we kind of wrap up. Any attempt of ours to simply tack Jesus on to what we're already doing will ultimately destroy the thing we're already doing and it will rob us of the joy that Jesus is promising. He's specifically talking about religion and tradition here. So traditions aren't bad, but trying to fit Jesus into old traditions is. Because when God does something new, new traditions form. And you can't fit Jesus into an old system. And there's incredibly good news that comes from it. We get to celebrate like the people who get to go to the greatest bachelor party ever. We get to celebrate because we're part of the greatest reunion of all time that God has called his unfaithful back to himself, not by their own merit, but because he loved and cared for them. We get to see the joy that comes, not from God coming in and saving and redeeming people who have it all figured out, but when God comes in and he calls to himself people who are messed up. When God walks right past the religious to the people with issues and says, you're the one, you're the one I want to display my power in. We're the people that get front row seats to see God call people like Matthew, who at one point were outcasts and now are drawn back into the family of God. We get to celebrate this. We get to be the witnesses of it. Not because Jesus has given us a hobby to resolve all that's broken in our lives, because that would be demeaning and belittling, ever so condescending. But instead, we're the people who get a brand new life because of what Jesus has done. Neither the Pharisees nor John's disciples were wrong in their religious practice. The religious practice was not evil. Don't go running out there and saying religion is evil and chopping it down. Okay? Don't, don't do that. You're going to make a lot of people angry, and there are people who are like getting angry, so they're looking for you to do that. Don't, don't do that. It wasn't the religious practice that was wrong here. It was the fact that they were missing out on the bride himself, on Jesus himself. They missed out on God's presence in Jesus. It wasn't the religion that was evil. It was the fact that they completely missed the promise of God shown to them in Jesus. God means to do something for you and me. And here's, I think, how it applies. Um, For some of you, Jesus, this whole thing we talk about Jesus is like a religious practice, a hobby that you want to tack onto your own life. And I bet you're really exhausted 
Because I'm up here telling you, hey, do this, serve people, love people. And I bet you're like, that's really annoying. Stop talking like that. And I think it might be because you're missing out on the fact that Jesus doesn't want to just be tacked onto your agenda. Instead, Jesus has an agenda that means to give you more joy than you can ever imagine. And there is good news. That annoyance of always trying to live up to the religious expectations, always trying to be a certain way and look a certain way, you can lay those aside. We sang it earlier. There is freedom. There's freedom from all that. Not because those things are bad, because they just don't get us the love of God shown to us in Jesus. And we get to lay aside our own desires and expectations and all of our wants to meet God's standards, and we get to celebrate that God has met the standard fully and completely in Jesus Christ. And so for those of you, maybe you feel really burdened, like, oh, like even now, I'm, I'm telling you how good Jesus is, and your response is, I'm going to do better this week. Right? Even now, you're like, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to stop cussing. I'm going to stop doing this. I mean, whatever. I'm going to stop doing this. And you're, even now, you're thinking about what you ought to do, and I, my, my, you're just trying to tack Jesus onto your agenda. Please, Jesus doesn't want you to try any harder. Jesus wants you to trust in all the things that he's done. He doesn't want you to try more. He wants you to trust more. He, want, he doesn't want you to be more this week. He wants you to believe more in what he's done for you. And feel the, feel the freedom that comes over when you get, right now you get to stop. Like, what am I going to do this week? Well, I'm, I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm simply going to trust in what Jesus has done and let him do all the work. It's completed. But for us as a church, let us never be a people who is more loyal to our religious practice than we are to Jesus. Let us be more excited about following Jesus than we are about following rules. Let us be more passionate about knowing and loving and sharing Jesus than we are about looking, acting, and being a certain way and appearing a certain way to the people around us. Traditions aren't bad, but let us be a people who have traditions built around the good news of Jesus for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, that you are merciful. Uh, we thank you that you are good. Uh, we thank you that you have uh, given us a gift in Jesus Christ that we could have never earned. Um, God, may we be the people that as we uh, dig into your teaching, we learn more about how good your love is, how amazing your grace is. Uh, forgive us for the times when we've basically played God and tried to fit you into our lives as though we're in charge of this whole mess. Instead, would you begin to show us ways in which we can see that your kingdom is coming. You have been given authority. And all that's left for us to do is receive the gift of grace that you as a coming king are giving to us. So if there's some of us, maybe we're caught up in this, uh, this cycle of trying and failing and we've, we've just found a, a disgust in ourselves and dissatisfaction in, in our best attempts, would you begin to set us free from that? If, if we're really even now trying to pump ourselves up to do better, God, would you show us that, that ultimately you've, you've done the greatest and most amazing thing for us. The rest, the rest for us to do is just to follow in line with it. We can't outdo you. We can't do more than what Jesus has done. Help us to be the people that simply believe and celebrate and live out the good news of what you've already accomplished for us. So if there's someone in this room that they're finding that hard to believe, they're finding it difficult to, to believe that that's possible, that God would love someone like them, if they're finding it, you know, there's no way God can forgive me. Would you show them the example of Matthew? May they be encouraged that God would use a guy like Matthew who betrayed and turned on his own people. 
And when he heard Jesus' words to follow him, he just dropped everything and did it. Give us the joy that Matthew must have found in knowing that you love people who are broken. You love people who have issues. Not because they're special, but because your, your grace is displayed most perfectly in them. Lastly, help us to be a group of people. If we're going to call ourselves a church, people centered around the gospel, help us to be a people, instead of being loyal to our own agenda and our own plan, help us be loyal to the good news. Help us be loyal to this amazing thing you've done. Forgive us of ways in which we try to tack you onto the thing we're already doing. If there's a new tradition we need to have that needs to uproot old traditions and old ways of thinking and old ways of doing, God, root it up now. Rip it out and let us rip it out with, with courage, knowing that ultimately we're going to get more out of following you. We're going to get more joy from being with the bridegroom than we're ever going to get from putting on a play wedding. We're going to get more joy from being in the presence of our King who is coming and reigning than we'll ever get playing church. Forgive us for where we've been more loyal to our own tradition and our own systems of behavior than we have to following you. We ask that you would give us joy in that. In Jesus' name, amen.